Psalm 72. This is a Psalm of Solomon, which uh, Solomon only wrote one Psalm in the Bible. It's Psalm 72, a Psalm of Solomon. Give uh, the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure. Throughout all generations, he shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days, the righteous shall flourish an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence and precious shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountains, its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be pleased in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. And amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Uh, we have uh, today as our sermon, it will be uh, Exodus 16, verses 9 through 21. It's entitled Quail and Manna. And uh, I said something before the prophecy update, and I want to say it in, before the sermon as well, because some people may watch the sermon and not the prophecy update. It's usually the opposite. But um, just in case somebody does not watch the prophecy updates, is that I wanted to personally thank uh, a couple of people that sent some gifts to this church. Uh, one of them is a picture that, uh, or a painting that a person did for us, and it really means a lot to me. The symbolism is beautiful. He has an explanation of all of the symbolism on the back of the painting, and if I can get a good picture of it, I'll put it on the video. And uh, I wanted to thank him for that. And also um, a lady, uh, I don't want to give their names without permission, but uh, she uh, made us a stained glass of a cross. And she asked me, what is your favorite verse in the Bible? And I told her it's Hebrews 12, 2. And because it kind of runs on, she wrote Hebrews 12, 1 and 12, 2 on that cross there. And it's in the window and uh, it really is beautiful. And I wanted to thank them for that. And uh, then as always, I walk in and I get these these really touching letters. Somebody sent me a, uh, a card this morning and... Um, uh, she's a person that attends our church. She watches the uh, the Bible study streaming online, and uh, I don't know if she's streaming online during the uh, the service or not. Maybe she watches it on YouTube, but I think probably the service. But when I get something in the door of the the church, it, it touches me because we're a really really small congregation, and to know that there are a lot of people out there that use or, or feel that this is their home church means a great great deal to me. So thank you for that. And uh, now we'll read um, Exodus 16, starting in verse 9. Um, then Moses spoke to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it in accordance, according to each one's need, one omer for each person, according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. 
Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, Let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. I will tell you this, that uh, sometimes I'll say this in advance, just so you don't feel like you, you, you're sitting there feeling, I just don't know what he's talking about. On a scale of 1 to 10, this might be a 7 to a 9 in complexity. And um, just because I know what I'm talking about, because I typed the thing and I studied for it, doesn't mean that I knew what I was talking about before I studied. In other words, I was as lost in these verses as you may be. Just stick with the basic, Christ. This is all about Christ. And so if there's something you say, I just don't know what he's talking about, Every one of these sermons is online, in written form, exactly as I speak them. That one just popped up a minute ago because I have it planned to pop up on YouTube when I give the sermon. So anybody can sit there and watch the sermon and read, or they can read it later. Don't feel lost. It's all there for you if you want to go look at it. Um, when we decided to move off the beach a few years ago, we started looking for a building. And when I saw the sign on this place, I called the number and I asked uh, about the building and, you know, what's the price and all that. The owner, the owner told me the price and then asked if I was opening a bar. And I told him, no, a church. And the reason why is because we have 28 bars within walking distance of here. It's, it's Bar Alley, right? <laughs> this guy was so delighted that he immediately started talking himself down on the price. He said, it's true. He said that bars had offered him much more than his asking price. But being a Christian, he refused to sell. But when a church wanted it, he went in the opposite direction to a point where I was actually worried that he was going to lose on the deal. And as we were getting ready to move in here and getting the place ready, we needed some nice cabinets for the bathrooms, right? Within just a couple of days, two beautiful ones were sitting right there by the road waiting for somebody to take them for free. I could go on and on and on with stories such as this, but you get the picture. The Lord sent us manna in order to sustain us as a church. He was saying, trust me. It'll work out as it should. Today, we're going to see how he did the same for Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. Our text verse comes from Nehemiah chapter 9. It's the 20th verse. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth. My friend Tom, who Jim and I do uh, mission work with every week, says, the Lord may not give you everything you want, but he will always give you everything you need. He's great in that way. He never fails to meet our needs. And quite often, he sends us the things we want as well. He is the giver of the extravagant, and he is the provider of all that we need. It is a truth which permeates his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is the glory of the Lord. It's verses 9 through 11. Verse 9, then Moses spoke to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before the Lord. The word before here in this verse is lifne, which literally means face or faces. And hence we get the idea of before. But what is implied is that the people are called together for a special meeting, a face-to-face -face meeting. And not only is it the people in general, as if it could imply only the designated leaders of the tribes, but rather Moses has called all the congregation. Every person is to present their face to the Lord. And there's a reason for this as the rest of the verse explains. Verse nine going on for he has heard your complaints. The word for complaints here is Toluna. It's a word that was introduced into the Bible in the last sermon and was explained then it is used only nine times in the Bible, six times in this chapter and three more in the book of Numbers. This is the fifth of those six times. It indicates a murmuring or a grumbling, as if the people have a resentment which is welling up inside of them, which they have been sitting around moaning about. It wasn't just a few people, but the entire congregation had been whining. It started somewhere and the infection grew throughout the people of the camp. This was seen explicitly in verse 2, which said, Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. After that time, their reason for complaining was also given. Verse 3, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. 
for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. But their whining was surely unjustified. Matthew Henry gives his thoughts on the words they spoke. He says, we cannot suppose that they had plenty in Egypt, nor could they fear dying for want in the wilderness while they had flocks and herds. None talk more absurdly than murmurers. When we begin to fret, we ought to consider that God hears all of our murmurings. And that's something that Charlie Garrett really should take to heart, because I'm a murmurer. The Lord did hear their murmurings and promised to provide for them. Again, withholding his wrath at their lack of faith. His promise included two things, meat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. When we looked at the uh, verses from last week in verse 7, it said this, And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? Now, as the congregation is summoned, the glory of the Lord will appear in the cloud before all the people. But as was seen from a breakdown of the structure of the verses, this is not the glory of the Lord which verse 7 was speaking of. Scholars whose commentaries tie the glory of the Lord in verse 7 with that which will now be seen have missed the significance of how this passage is structured and what it's trying to show us. You remember those parallelisms I showed you last week. The pillar of cloud and fire has been with the people since Etham, and they were expected to have faith that if the Lord was leading them in this way, that he would tend to their needs in the process. But instead of turning their eyes to the Lord in faith, they turned them inward in complaint. He's now going to illuminate the cloud with his splendor in an attempt to wake them up and show them that if his glory is there ahead of them, then his glory will also be displayed among them. Verse 10, now it came to pass as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel. As was the case with Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh, we see here as well. Aaron was given the instruction to speak by Moses, and then he repeated the words to the whole congregation. However, this is probably more for the benefit of Aaron than it is for the sake of Moses' speech impediment. By having Aaron speak for Moses, it will show that he is, like Moses, a qualified representative of the Lord. The congregation was said to have complained against both of them back in verse 2. And so having Aaron speak for Moses will show that their complaints against both of them were unjustified. Verse 10 continues, that they looked toward the wilderness. It is significant that these words are included. The Lord could have appeared directly above them as if he were an authoritarian ruler lording himself over the people. He could have radiated to them from the top of a nearby mountaintop as if he were a king on his throne ready to make a judgment or hand down an edict, which is something we're actually going to see in Exodus chapter 19 leading to Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. He could have appeared to them from the direction that they had come as if to say, I'm now going to take you back to the pots full of meat in Egypt just as you wished. But none of these things occurred. Instead, he will manifest himself in the direction of the wilderness. In one sense, he had separated himself from the people as if to say, your grumbling has caused a rift between you and me, and I am separated from you in order to keep from destroying you. Additionally, though, it was also a sign that the Lord determined to continue leading them into the wilderness when they broke camp. That vast and inhospitable area which lay before them would consume all of them if they were to simply venture into it without suitable provision. By manifesting himself there, it was to be a sign to them that he was their provision and that what he would do would be sufficient for them. The promise had already been made, meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. Now they would have a visible manifestation of where that promise would come from. By seeing the Lord in this way, in the future, they would be reminded of his glory every time they went out to reap what he sowed for them and to gather what he had graciously left for them. In this gathering, they were expected to behold the glory of the Lord each and every day. This then is what is meant in verse 7 with the words, And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. What they picked up would be from the same source as what their eyes beheld. The Lord in the cloud was to be the giver of the bread, and it is a marvelous picture of Christ in both instances. Verse 10 continues, And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. As the cloud was with them throughout the journey, this then must indicate a particular change in the cloud itself. 
just as Christ was with the apostles throughout his ministry, there was a time when he more fully manifested himself and his glory to them. That's recorded in all three synoptic gospels, and Matthew records it this way. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. The cloud which had led Israel suddenly burst forth with a glory hitherto unseen. And there are certainly a few reasons for this. The first was already alluded to. The Lord was with the people and he would be their guide and their sustenance in the wilderness. Further, because he appeared to the people as Aaron spoke, it would revalidate his authority to be a spokesman on behalf of the Lord. In turn, because he spoke according to the instruction of Moses, Moses was likewise distinguished and therefore recognized as the Lord's spokesman. And finally, it was a visible demonstration of the majesty of the Lord. He wasn't just an invisible entity which was surrounded by a pillar of cloud and fire. Instead, he is a visible entity which is merely concealed by that pillar. It is a picture of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Christ is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. In this brightness, which bursts forth from the cloud to show that there is more than just a hidden force, but a glorious being, the God of Israel. Verse 11, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, at least 12 times in this chapter, a verse begins with someone speaking to someone else, and it continues on in the same verse with what that person says. However, in this one instance, these words, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, are set off as a separate verse. In this, the chapter has 36 verses instead of just 35. In turn, the book of Exodus is a verse longer, and in turn, the Bible is a verse longer. Each seemingly random addition like this one leads to a more perfect pattern, which is found in the structure of the Bible. And so each time we come to a sentence which is divided like this, I try to highlight it to you in order to remind you that there is true wisdom behind each word and every verse which is found in Scripture. In addition to that, there is something for us to pay attention to here. Moses is mentioned 17 times in this chapter. And you wonder why I know these things is because I sit and I count these things. I just love counting why things happen in the Bible the way they do. All right, he's mentioned 17 times. Aaron is only mentioned six times. And all six times that Aaron is mentioned is either in connection to Moses or speaking as directed by him. The Lord has chosen Moses as his representative. And in turn, he at times designates Aaron as his spokesman. What we are seeing in words, Israel was to see in person. The obvious nature of the established hierarchy makes the rebellions which are recorded all the more poignant. Like the fifth commandment, which asks us to honor our father and our mother, the Lord establishes hierarchies for a reason. I told the guy yesterday that I married him and his new wife. I said, you are now the spiritual head of this family. The Lord establishes these things for a reason. When we complain against them or refuse to be obedient to them, the result is that we end up harming ourselves and our relationships with them and with the Lord. And one final point about these words, they should probably read, and the Lord had spoke to Moses saying, rather than, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying. In time, chronologically, this verse certainly precedes verse 7. But in order to ensure the proper structure was maintained to show that the glory of the Lord mentioned in that verse was speaking of the bread from heaven rather than the appearance of the Lord in the wilderness, it is stated to us now. You can see why that parallelism is so important in understanding these things. Hebrew is deficient in tenses, and so we have to infer whether something is present tense or past tense. In the case of these words, they are past they preceded Moses' words to the people, and therefore Moses was not being presumptuous in what he said to the people. Instead, he was now relaying what was already said to him, even though it's only now recorded. Verse 12, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. This is the last use of the word taluna or complaints in the book of Exodus. Chapter 16 is at least partly given to show us that the Lord is not unaware of our complaining and that he is not unsympathetic to it. 
When we are in need, our needs will be met according to his purposes. However, the next time that this word, taluna, is used, there will be a different result than what is experienced in this chapter. In Numbers chapter 14, the same congregation will receive very bad news because of their complaints. Here's what it says. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained to Luna against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who are numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. The very wilderness where the Lord has now manifested himself in splendid glory will become the burial place for all of the people who refused to acknowledge him as their faithful sovereign leader who would certainly provide for them if they would just humble their hearts before him. Verse 12 continues, speak to them saying, at twilight. The term for twilight here is ha-arbayim. It literally means between the evenings and it was first used in Exodus 12 verse 6 at the time of the Passover. It's good that you brought that up today, the Passover, because it's all tying in somehow into this little service of ours. This is now the second time that it is used. I won't re-explain all the details of that term, ha-arbaim. If you want to see it, go back and watch that sermon. But it is used 11 times in the Bible, and each time it details the work of Jesus Christ, the time of day when he died on the cross. What we are seeing here in the giving of the quail between the evenings and the glory of the Lord being seen in the manna in the morning is exactingly seen first in the cross of Christ, the quails, him giving his flesh for the sins of the world, and then in his resurrection where the bread of life, the resurrected Christ, comes forth from the grave in the morning. This is the very reason for the Lord's Supper where we weekly say these words. Baruch atah Yehovah Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lachem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord, or God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. It's a picture of the resurrection. It was between the evenings that Jesus Christ died on the cross, just as these quail will die for the people's meal. And it was in the morning that the bread of life, our Lord Jesus Christ, came forth from the grave, just as the manna miraculously appeared each morning. Now, isn't that a wonderful insight? Yeah. I told you last week, I'd tell you about that, and there it is. It, it's beautiful how God has structured all of this together. Verse 12 continues, You shall eat meat in the morning, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Remember that these words have already been spoken to Moses, and we are now only seeing them. We can see why there is a change from verse 4, which only spoke of the bread from heaven. It is not an arbitrary insert by a fumbling scribe, as a lot of scholars say, but it's rather a logical progression of thought in combination with a marvelous series of parallelisms, which have helped us to determine what is going on in this particular account. This is certain because we come to the second use in the Bible of the word sabah, which means to be sated or satisfied. The first was in verse 8, and I told you you'd have to wait next, till next week for that as well. Why did God choose to use the word sabah, or sated, here for the first time in the Bible? Its use shows us that this verse certainly precedes verse 8, and Moses is repeating what he was told. If the details seem overwhelming, imagine my Monday, 17 August, as I went back and forth between these verses, trying to put together a timeline that would help you grasp what's going on. In the end, Bible study is hard work, and I say this all the time. It's hard work. People don't want to go through the hard work, and so they simply watch a bunch of prophecy updates, and they speculate on the date of the return of Jesus, and they don't get into the Bible. But I have to tell you, despite it being hard work, the rewards are heavenly. We're getting a look into the mind of God as he slowly and methodically reveals his word to us. Each verse is selected to show us what happened and how it has a greater fulfillment in Christ the Lord. So why is it that the Lord chose this chapter of the Bible to introduce the word Saba or satisfied? It is because this chapter pictures the only thing that can truly satisfy, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Jesus said concerning these words in John 6:35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 12 continues, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. The term Lord or Yehovah is mentioned 22 times in this chapter. The word God or Elohim is mentioned 
only once, and it's only mentioned in relation to the Lord. Ani Yehovah Elohechem. I am the Lord your God. Notice, though, that the proclamation is made in connection with the giving of the meat and the bread. Out of all of the 22 uses of Lord in this chapter, he chooses this verse with this precept to explicitly remind them of who he is. Now, why would this be? The answer is Jesus. The word meat here is basar. It literally means flesh. It's what we are as beings. It is the body of a being which is seen in contrast to the ruach or the spirit. The Lord is giving Israel flesh and bread to sustain them. And this is exactly what Jesus claimed that he was giving to his people. In John chapter 6, Jesus speaks extensively about the bread from heaven, which is detailed in this passage of Exodus that we're looking at right now. To sum up his words to the people, he says this, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. In that passage I just read you, he uses both the Greek word for flesh, which is sarks, and the Greek word for bread, which is artos, exactly what is being given in this verse in Exodus. This is why the 12th verse of this chapter says, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the end, it is all about Jesus. Christ gave his flesh, and he is the true bread of heaven. By these, we know that he is the Lord our God. Take time today to read John chapter 6, starting in verse 22 and all the way to the end of the chapter, and you will better understand the relationship between these two wonderful stories. You shall know that I am the Lord your God. I will make it evident in the works I do. Be confident that as in this earth you trod that I have given sufficient evidence to you. I prevailed over the law, which no one else could do. I showed that I am the Holy One of Israel. And then I went to Calvary's cross for you. And so of my works you are to tell. I proved my sinless life when I broke death's chains. In the resurrection I proved that I have set you free. Now the only thing which remains is that you reach out your heart and receive me. Our second thought today is bread from the Lord. It's verses 13 through 16. Verse 13. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp. This is the first of only four times that quails will be mentioned in the entire Bible. The word is actually in the singular Ha Salav, or the quail. Either this is one humongous quail, or it is as if they came up as one and alighted all at the same time everywhere, just covering the camp. And I'm certain that that's the reasonable explanation, okay? I will explain this word Salav, or quail, for a new brain squiggle for each of you. Salav is an orthographical variation on the word Shalah, which means to prosper. The idea comes from to be quiet or to be at ease. And when you're prospering, you sit around and you take it easy, right? All right, so the connection between the words is that quails are fat and they're very slow in flight because of their weight. And so they're given this name because they're like birds that take it easy. And I can tell you this is true because when I was in Oregon going around to all 50 states, preaching at every capital, I went through a flock of quail. And those slow birds hit my car like you can't believe, and they actually broke my uh, antenna. And so I had to sing to myself for the rest of the 16,000-mile journey. And I got to tell you what, I'm the most boring person on the face of the planet. So there you go. Salav comes from the word shalah. It means to be at rest or ease. There's a brain squiggle for you. The other account of quails being given to the people uh, in this manner is in Numbers chapter 11. However, when the people eat of those quails, many are going to die. From a New Testament perspective of why, why does everybody live eating this quail and everyone die from eating that quail? From a New Testament perspective of why, we can go to Paul's admonition concerning the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There in verse 30, Paul told them that because of not discerning the Lord's body, many were weak and sick and many of them had died. We are to come to the Lord's table recognizing our state before him, not arrogantly, but in humility. 
Israel will fail to do this in the book of Numbers and they will suffer because of it. Albert Barnes notes this about migrating quail, which can be observed even in our modern times. He said, the bird migrates in immense numbers in spring from the south. It is nowhere more common than in the neighborhood of the Red Sea. In this passage, we read of a single flight so dense that it covered the encampment. The miracle consisted in the precise time of the arrival and its coincidence with the announcement. After spending the uh, winter down in Africa, they fly north again. Once they cross the Red Sea, because they're fat and they're slow, they're utterly exhausted and they can be gathered up in enormous numbers with no difficulty at all. As Barnes noted though, the miracle is that they arrived exactly at the time that the Lord had said for them to do. Flesh would be given at the same time that Christ died on the cross, which is between the evenings. The giving of the quails pictures the giving of the Son of God for the nourishment of our life. Verse 13 continues, And in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. The bread from heaven, of which a name has not yet been given, came in the morning with a layer of dew. The word translated here as lay is the Hebrew word shechava, which means an emission. It's a surprising word to show up here, but nothing sexual should be inferred. This is the first use of it in the Bible, and the word is going to be used just nine times in the whole Bible and only in Exodus through Leviticus. This word, shechava, is defined as the seed of copulation. This would then imply that which gives life. If that doesn't perfectly fit with Jesus' words of John chapter 6, I'm not sure what does. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Again, like the giving of the quail and even the timing of their arrival, the appearance of the dew around the camp is a perfect picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in his work for us. The true bread of God, which gives life to the world, pictured by the bread in the wilderness that was provided to give life to Israel. It is Jesus, and he came out of the grave at that same time of day. Interestingly, the term do here has only been used in one account prior to this. That was in Genesis 27 during the blessing by Isaac on his two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was blessed with the dew of heaven, and Esau's blessing was being away from the dew of heaven. And if you know who they picture, Jacob pictured Christ, and Esau pictured Adam or unregenerate man, it's unbelievable how everything is tying up in simple words which are hidden in the Bible. This picture of the dew of heaven is beginning to be realized right here in Exodus chapter 16. Verse 14, and when the layer of dew lifted there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. There's a lot of interesting information in this verse. We have the dew mentioned again, which was just explained in the previous verse. Once that was gone up from the ground, something wonderful is left behind for the people. It's a small round substance. The word for small here is dak. It literally means thin. The word round here is chaspas, and it's used only this once in the entire Bible. It means round, but not round like a ball. Rather, it is round like a scale. Its root means to peel like a scale, and so we get the idea of a round thing, which is very thin. And the word for frost here is kafor, which indicates to cover, as in the frost covering the ground. This word kafor comes from the word kafar, which means to appease, or to atone, or to forgive, or to be merciful. Anybody seeing it here? It is again a picture of Jesus Christ who covers our sins in his mercy. Israel's receiving of this bread from heaven is merely looking forward to our atonement and the sustaining of our salvation as we walk in this fallen world. As long as we are here, we continue to rely on the true bread from heaven which sustains us until we enter the land of promise, which is exactly when Israel's manna ended. When they crossed over the Jordan and into Canaan, we read this from the book of Joshua. It says, Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. As the manna only became visible when the dew had lifted, it is probably an explanation for the enigmatic expression used by Jesus 
when he's speaking to the churches in Revelation 2.17, where he promises those who overcome, meaning those who call on him as Lord and Savior, some of the hidden manna to eat. Until the dew lifts, it remains hidden. Verse 15, so when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. How ironic. How ironic. Absolutely. The Hebrew words translated here as what is it? Read man hu. Though it would be seemingly very easy to translate this, I got to tell you what, it isn't. The word what in Hebrew is not man. It's ma. And so some scholars say that it doesn't mean what is it at all, but rather it is a gift. The Hebrew word manan means gift. And so they believe that it's a shortened exclamation for that. Other scholars disagree and they say that man obviously means what, because that is what it means in the Aramaic language. But why would one word from Aramaic be translated this one time in the Hebrew Bible as what? Why would that be? The King James Version avoids the conflict by simply translating it, it is manna. But this doesn't explain anything. Instead, it simply translates what the Hebrew says. But then it causes it to contradict itself because it next says that they named it manna because they didn't know what it was. That makes as much sense as a football bat, okay? I'm sure that the meaning of the word manna now is as clear as mud to you. And just so you know, when you read your Bible, the word is man. It's not mana, okay? Whatever man means. Mana comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. I would personally prefer the word gift. It is a gift because this is exactly how Jesus describes his work and how it's described of his work also in the New Testament. Jesus sitting there at the well in John chapter 4 says to the woman, if you knew the gift of God and who was speaking to you, blah, 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 right? And then Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that we are saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God and not of works lest any man should boast. So I would think that it probably is, it is a gift, but that's just me, okay? Verse 15 continues, and Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Whatever the actual meaning of man is, Moses explains that it is the bread which the Lord has provided for them. It is an exact picture of the words of Jesus in John 6. The Lord has given the bread of life to eat and to sustain us for all of the ages to come. Verse 16, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. Moses' instructions here are clear concerning what should be gathered according to each man's need. The Hebrew, however, is much more expressive. It says, ish le pi achalo, man as his mouth to his eating. Verse 16 continues, one omer for each person. An omer for each person. In Hebrew, la gugolet, literally for every head or skull. Gugolet means skull. And so you can hear in that word the similarity to the name of the hill where Jesus Christ died, Golgotha, or the place of the skull. Golgotha, Gugolet. You see, we're getting pictures of Christ all the way through this. This is the first of 12 times that it's going to be used in the Bible. For each person reckoned, or each skull reckoned, an omer is designated. This is an average for what a man would normally eat in a day, an omer per person. It is the first time that this measurement is given in the Bible, and scholars vary in what they believe it is, from three pints to six pints. If it is only three pints, I'm going to be conservative here and an average family had four people, then that would be six quarts collected daily. It is assumed that there were about two million people in the congregation. And so this would mean in one day, there would be 93,500 bushels of manna collected in one day. If you've ever watched one of those stupid programs on TV that shows someone collecting a little bit of stuff off the side of a mountain or off of a bush and claiming this is the manna of the wilderness, you can now see how utterly ridiculous that is. 93,500 bushels is trainfuls and trainfuls of wheat. This could be nothing other than a miraculously provided for food source. Considering that this went on day after day after day for about 40 years, there is no possible way that what is described on those stupid shows could ever come close to meeting what the account says for one day, much less to almost 40 years. Verse 16 continues, according to the number of persons, However many dwelt together in each residence, the amount was to be figured according to that. Verse 16 goes on. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. 
the directions given are very precise and they follow a set pattern. We'll go back through them. Man as his mouth to his eating, one omer for every skull according to the number of souls. It is this that each man was to take for his tent. And just so you know, because I like to jab at King James only people, the word tent in this verse is singular. It is not plural. The King James Version gets a demerit on this verse for translating it as tents. Okay? There's been a lot of specificity in these verses, and it is all pointing to God's provision in Jesus Christ. The people would be tended to, and they would be even given an abundance to meet their daily needs. As Matthew Henry sums this up, God promises a speedy and constant supply. He tried whether they would trust him and rest satisfied with the bread of the day in its day. Thus he tried if they would serve him, and it appeared how ungrateful they were. When God plagued the Egyptians, it was to make them known that he was their Lord. When he provided for the Israelites, it was to make them know that he was their God. The flesh which God has sent is food indeed. It is sufficient to fill us and give us life anew. And when we have partaken, we will then follow at the lead of our Lord who has given himself for me and you. The dew of heaven has left behind a gift for us. There is bread enough for all to eat. And this only pictures the coming Messiah, Jesus. Oh my, how delicious is this bread, so very sweet. Thank you, O oh God, for filling our souls in such a way. You have granted us life through your Son. And so we exalt you through him each and every day until when at last this earthly life is done. Then we shall praise you forevermore, O oh God, as in the heavenly Jerusalem we shall forever trod. Our third thought today is our daily bread. It's verses 17 through 21. Verse 17, then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. What seems to be implied here is not disobedience, but rather initiative. Some people were more inclined to gather and some less. They gathered what came to their hand until they were done gathering. It follows through then that if the manna pictures Christ, then we can apply the same to us. Some of us here gather in just a little bit of Christ. Some gather in a lot. A preacher or a scholar may struggle over the Bible, searching out its mysteries in order to bring them home to his flock. But the blue-collar worker may read the word cursorily at best and not really intend to find anything other than the surface story which is before his eyes. Likewise, the rich man in the church may give a great deal in order to meet the needs and expenses of the church, while the poor widow may give only two small copper pennies. And yet, when the two are combined, something wonderful happens. Verse 18, so when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. The marvelous result of the gathering of the people resulted in having exactly what was needed according to each one's need. The word left over here, used for the first time in the Bible, is adaf. It means excess, and it's only found nine times in the Bible, only in the writings of Moses from Exodus through Numbers. A couple things seem to be implied in this passage. One is that it was miraculous gathering which occurred each and every day, not just on the first day. And the second thing is that it was all gathered into heaps and then portioned out. What was collected by all collectively met the needs of all individually. This verse is used by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, which we're going through in our daily devotional right now, to show exactly this. In the end, every need is met according to the wisdom of God. He had asked the Corinthians to assist in giving to the saints in Jerusalem who are in need. In order to inspire them on in their giving, he wrote these words to us. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by any quality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who had gathered little had no lack. If we learn nothing else from this verse, we should at least see that the Lord truly has it all under control. This isn't a verse condoning communism either. There is nothing here or anywhere else in the Bible to suggest that everyone's property belonged to the collective whole. These people are still dwelling in their own tents, and they're going to voluntarily give up some gifts later on for the building of the tabernacle. Rather, this is a passage which asks us to realize that the Lord has handed out abilities and gifts to all, and that each of these collectively works toward the fulfilling of every need. Some have greater needs, some have lesser needs, but in the end, every need is met. Verse 19, and Moses said, let, none, let no one leave any of it until morning. 
This directive is given specifically as one requiring trust. In essence, the Lord will provide, and so you are to trust that he will, in fact, provide. They were to recognize their complete dependence on God and have sufficient faith that he would meet their needs according to his promises. In the same chapter of Matthew, which includes the words, give us this day our daily bread, Jesus seems to remind his audience of this very passage from Exodus. Here's what he says. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For all of these things the Gentiles seek after. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Verse 20, notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. This is another miracle of the manna. When we get to verse 24, we will see that when they gathered enough for two days with the approaching Sabbath, it will last both days without breeding worms or stinking. Further, all the way down in verse 33, Moses and Aaron were instructed to take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. This manna was intended to last forever. Thus, the manna was something incorruptible in and of itself, but which became corrupt through disobedience. This then is an exacting picture of how Paul describes our life in Jesus Christ. One's obedience to the Lord, or lack of it, pictured by how the Israelites treated the manna, was either rewarded or frowned upon. And it was the light of the new day which showed the results of what occurred. The manna itself had nothing wrong with it, but how it was treated brought the negative result. Paul says that our work for the Lord is the same. If we act in a positive manner, there will be a reward. If we act negatively, there will be a loss. Here are his words from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, For no other foundation can anyone lay that, than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, I'm sorry, yes, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Verse 21 finishes with these words. So they gathered it every morning, every man, according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. And now we see another miracle of the manna. The manna that wasn't collected did what? melted away under the sun. And yet, we will read in verse 23 that it can be baked or boiled, something much hotter than the sun shining on it, and yet it wouldn't melt away. The Lord ensured that the manna wasn't just left on the ground to be trampled underfoot, nor was it left out where people could gather it any day during the day, nor could anybody not in the covenant community come along and partake of it. Instead, they needed to be diligent in gathering it in as early and as much as possible in order to be ready for the day ahead. The manna was to be a lesson to them that they were dependent on the Lord for their sustenance. And it was to be a way of instilling in them discipline and obedience while still lavishing upon them abundant grace. For us, it's no different. God has shown us that we are utterly dependent on him for our salvation. We are also dependent on him for the gifts we possess. We are to use those gifts through discipline and obedience to his glory. If we fail to do so, it is we who will go hungry. Everything that we need is found in Jesus Christ, and we simply need to reach out day by day and to receive it. And if you've never made a first and heartfelt commitment to this wonderful Lord who is pictured in these marvelous verses, please let me introduce him to you now so that you can. Jesus Christ is completely pictured in every passage of the Old Testament. It all speaks about him, every word, every detail, because God is trying to get us to wake up to the fact that he is going to do something marvelous in redemptive history by coming into the stream of time that he created. Here's God outside of time, and he says, these people are fallen. There's no fellowship with them. There's nothing that will ever restore us unless I do it. And so he united with human flesh in the womb of Mary, Jesus Christ was not born with a human father, and therefore he did not inherit human sin. He was born without that. And then he lived under the law, 
of God, which was given to the people of Israel as an Israelite. And he fulfilled that law, never sinning the way our first father did. And therefore he became an acceptable sacrifice to the misdeeds of Adam. All we need to do is just call out to him and receive him. Jesus, I have sinned. I know that I can't save myself. I understand that you came out of eternity to do this for me. And every single thing that we see in these passages, everything, even the time of day, ha-arbaim, between the evenings, picturing the cross of Christ, and in the morning, the bread coming out for the people, Christ coming out of the grave, it is all about his love for you. But it's not automatic. You have to reach out and you have to receive his forgiveness. And if you don't do that, you will stand condemned before God. There is no way to get to God any other way. Jesus himself said that, so please call out to him and ask him to simply forgive you. And remember to do the hard work. I'm so glad to have even a small congregation because it shows that people are willing to do the hard work to understand this marvelous thing that he's trying to tell us. We can get all we need from Jesus in about four verses, right? As far as being saved. But we can spend the rest of our life looking at individual verses and little passages that most people never look at and finding details that say, I love you. Oh, man, what a great, great, great God we serve. Our closing verse today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's verse 8. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Next week is Exodus 16. It's verses 22 through 36. It's just the best, a real winner. It's entitled Entering God's Rest, the Hidden Omer. That'll be our 47th Exodus sermon. And I will tell you this right now that we have a couple people there, Jay and Joan, that have a friend that is a Seventh-day Adventist. And he's absolutely convinced that the Sabbath has to be observed, right? All right. I would ask you to bring him here, or at least if he won't come, to send him this next coming sermon because it details the Sabbath day in a way we are not obligated to it. Now I'll speak about this again and again and again throughout the Bible, but this will be a perfect sermon for that guy. It is absolutely clear what God is trying to show us in entering God's rest, that's us, and then the hidden omer. There's two little thoughts going on in this passage, which is marvelous, marvelous pictures of Christ. And I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Our poem today, based on the verses we just looked at, is called Quail and Manna. Then Moses spoke to Aaron this word, say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints as well. Now as it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, yes, the entire nation, that they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud, a sight which did impress. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them as I am relaying, say, at twilight you shall eat meat, get ready for a tasty smell. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, just as I have said. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp of Israel, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp as well. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness all around was a small round substance which had been gifted as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what, what it was. They didn't have a clue, not even a bit. And Moses said to them concerning this tasty treat, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer for each person. I am being candid. This is what I have decreed. According to the number of persons to this extent, let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less even though. So when they measured it by omers after having brought it back, he who gathered much had nothing left over indeed, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding Moses, they did not heed, but some of them left part of it until morning, ignoring the warning, and it bred worms and stank because of their misdeed. And Moses was angry with them in turn because they refused to pay attention and learn. Sounds like us, huh? So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, 
and when the sun became hot, it melted. An impressive lesson for them indeed. Here we are, O oh God, just like Israel. We complain about every possible thing. Even when we know that surely all is well, still we let our complaints openly ring. And we fail to heed your word. We find it easy to simply disobey. Even in the presence of our Lord, we get up and complain each and every day. Help us, O oh Lord, to simply trust and obey. Your word has told us that everything will be okay. Give us hearts that are geared towards glorifying you and eyes that are fixed solely upon Jesus. This is surely the right thing to do. And so grant this kind favor to each one of us. Thank you, O oh God, for our precious Lord Jesus. Thank you for leading us each step of the way. Be exalted on our lips. Hear the praises from each of us as we come before you day unto day. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful story, which word after word after word shows us another picture of your son. I think we're up to about 17,427,872 pictures of Jesus so far in the Bible, and we're only at the middle of the second book. What an honestly wonderful story you are showing us of your great love for us, and help us to get this word out to people and to tell them that the time is short and that they need to come to Jesus to be saved. I feel so terrible knowing that a whole world out there has just simply rejected the beauty of this word. It's all myths and it's all fairy tales, we say, when in fact it's, 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 it's self-proving. It's just, it absolutely validates itself every time we look at it. How marvelous are these stories all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for uh, Roy, our brother Roy, who's certainly in some pain right now. And uh, we also pray for uh, Darla as she's traveling. And just for anybody else that is here that has troubles in their hearts or in their souls or, or uh you know, Lord, people that may be out there on streaming online or watching a YouTube video and they have something troubling them, that you would be with them and help them through those things. Help us to be good stewards of our time and to comfort those who are in need and to uh, tell people about Jesus who haven't heard the good news. Whatever we do, help us to remember that it is you that we are working for and glorifying. So help us do that. And we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we get the uh, instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul writes us these words. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. It's just like what we were talking about in the sermon, bread in the morning. And he broke it and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, he would have given a blessing over it. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Peri HaGafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, great Heavenly Father, please take care of each person here in the week ahead. Bless them. Bring them back here safely if it's uh, their desire to come. And uh, uh, Lord, we thank you for how you've blessed each one of us. You've given us so much more than we need. Every one of us is full to overflowing. You've sent us manna from heaven throughout our lives, and we're so grateful for that. Thank you for the picture we saw today. The meat in the evening, the flesh in the evening, our Lord Christ dying on the cross, bread in the morning, the hope of eternal life because of the manna which gives the true life, our Lord Jesus. Thank you for that. How great you are. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.